I'm reading the first verse and a half of Hebrews 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We don't know who wrote those words, but we know that they are the words of God. The same spirit who stands behind the praise of the various psalmists and the wisdom of Proverbs, the law of Moses and the prophecies of Daniel, the histories of the gospel and the letters of Paul stands behind this message of exhortation and encouragement penned by an unknown brother of earlier times. In these words, he reminds us that we are the light of the world, that others, often unknown to us, are watching our lives. And here the God we've gathered to worship urges us to remember the faith and faithfulness of those who have gone before, to wrestle against the sin in our own hearts, and to fix our gaze on Jesus as he leads us through the days of our lives as the shepherd of our souls. Looking unto Jesus is his phrase and the theme of this sermon. I want to talk with you this morning about key figures in the drama of that first Christmas. Men who were not so much looking unto Jesus as looking for Jesus. We know them as the Magi or the wise men. The day the church ordinarily celebrates their arrival on the scene of sacred history is the 12th day after Christmas itself. January 6th is called Epiphany Sunday. The word Epiphany is an English form of the Greek epiphino, which means to shine upon. And it comes from a prophecy in Isaiah in which that man said, people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Historically, the church has interpreted this to refer to that time when the gates of the everlasting kingdom of God would be open to those who could not claim Abraham as their father. In other words, to us as Gentiles. The revelation to the wise men who were Gentiles that a new king had been born to Israel and their mysterious compulsion to see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us signal the beginning of a new age in the history of redemption. As the shepherds represent salvation that God offers to the Jews through Christ, the vision and the visit of the Magi declares that mercy and life are now extended to us as Gentiles as well. As Gentile believers, we celebrate Epiphany with great joy as we remember that just as surely as those ancient non-Hebrews were led to Christ so were we. As a believer who is not of the house and lineage of Abraham, I rejoice when I reflect on that gracious, irresistible leading of God in their lives. As a preacher, I delight in their story. There are a few Sundays in the year on which I delight more in preaching than on this particular Sunday. And because the first two Sundays of January will be occupied with other themes, I want to talk with you this morning about these men whose story is found only in the second chapter of Matthew. 
One of the reasons that I delight in talking about the wise men is the opportunity it affords to deal with some of the common errors that have crept into our collective understanding of what the Bible teaches. The errors regarding the visit of the Magi are several. For example, it is widely believed that we know who they were. The prominent tradition in the Western world is that their names were Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar. But other traditions assign other names to them. But in fact, we have no idea who they were. Another persistent view that is not supported by the scriptures is that they were kings. One of the most familiar songs of this season begins, We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse afar. And in this regard, one of the legends that swirl around these men is that they were, in fact, kings of Persia and Arabia and India who were making this strange pilgrimage altogether. But the Bible calls them magi. Magi is a plural form of the Greek word magus. It does not mean king. It cannot be translated king. It requires us to understand that these men were astrologers or primitive astronomers that they were not kings, but advisors to a king. And traditions aside, we know nothing, either from the Bible or any other reliable source, of the land from which they came. We only know that it was somewhere to the east of Jerusalem. Another of these commonly believed myths is that the wise men arrived on the same night on which the shepherds came, and that Christ was still in the stable when they came. However, a careful comparison of the accounts of Jesus' nativity in Luke and in Matthew makes it very plain that the Magi arrived much later, perhaps as long as two years after the shepherds had returned to their fields and to their flocks. And as you probably know, no number is assigned to the wise men by the scriptures. The number three is a prominent tradition. It's probably based on the number of gifts or kinds of gifts that they brought, but there are other traditions that there might have been as many as 12 of them. In one sense, none of this is very important. Our knowledge of God isn't enhanced or affected by our opinions of such matters. Our salvation or usefulness to God isn't rooted in our answers to such questions. A young Christian struggling to understand the very basics of Christian truth, or a seasoned believer who has grown weary with the tendency of his fellows to argue about trivial matters related to that faith, might very well ask who gives a rip about their names or their number or their ranks or when they came. And we have to agree that the mystification of the one and the cynicism of the other are justified, particularly when people make such jots and tittles of Christian truth litmus tests by which the acceptance or the rejection of others is determined. But on another plane, these issues are important. If I blithely assume that the wise men were three, while the Bible assigns no number to them, if I teach my grandchildren that they were kings, while the Bible plainly ascribes another rank to them, If on the stage of my imagination they arrive at the stable while the shepherds are still there, while the scriptures clearly describe a different time and a different place. In other words, 
If I learn that I'm wrong in my understanding about what the Bible teaches about something so simple and so easily verified as the visit of the Magi, then I have to wonder what other articles of my faith I'm also wrong about. Articles of faith much closer to the heart of the gospel and central to Christian living. God doesn't intend his word to be merely a pleasant supplement to our traditions and common sense. He intends that our knowledge of sacred truth and history should be grounded in that word and only in that word. If I discover that my opinions about any matter of importance to my life as a Christian is contrary to what God reveals on the pages of his word, then I need to be deeply troubled about that revelation and grateful when it's pointed out to me. I also love the story of the Magi for what it tells us about the power and the ability of God to lead people to himself apart from human agency. Whatever land the wise men called home, there was no church there. No missionaries had been sent to that place. There were no Christian radio or television broadcasts. There was no Christian track left on top of the water tank in the men's room at the rest stop where they paused along the way. From the standpoint of much as what is said about missions and evangelism in the church today, it would seem that God was left without a witness in their homeland. But then there was that star a strange light in the night sky that they not only noticed, but somehow understood to have a heavenly meaning. They not only saw the star and sensed its significance, but were compelled to go hundreds of miles to see for themselves the king whose birth that star signaled. What could possibly be the source of this yearning that could not be denied, but the same Holy Spirit who led you and me to Jesus Christ. It's a great privilege to be used by God in that process by which he draws people to himself. But may we be forever protected from the temptation to which others have succumbed to believe that our part in that drama is essential and that without us, others could not be saved. A very pregnant woman is wheeled into a delivery room where nurses and her doctor attend to her. That doctor and those nurses didn't start the process which is now ending in their presence. It is a process which almost would, would certainly complete itself if they were absent. And so it is with our engagement in evangelism. Our theology informs us that those who respond to the gospel are born again. Not because they respond to the gospel but before they respond. The visit as the wise men declares the sovereignty of God and the saving of those people he has chosen to be his own and leading them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. In one form or another, you've heard these things from this pulpit, but I'd like to share something new with you about the visit of the wise men. To the frustration of careful students of the scriptures, there's much that we'd like to know about these men called wise that is not revealed to us on the pages of the scriptures. An aura of mystery surrounds them. The history of their visit gives rise to more questions than answers, at least until very recently. 
Perhaps you've heard that a while back, a librarian assigned to Her Majesty's Department of Antiquities and Curiosities was prowling through the archives of the British Museum in London and found a number of very old wooden boxes filled with materials that were not only long forgotten, they hadn't even been cataloged. Naturally curious about what they might contain, he pried the crates open one by one and found that each held a number of cuneiform tablets. And knowing that this form of pictographic writing disappeared in the second century, he realized that what he was looking at were documents that were at least 2,000 years old. Enlisting the help of experts, he began the long, slow process of translating their symbols. Many of them were receipts of business transactions. Some of them were treaties established between nations and kings or the family histories of the gentry. But one of them stands apart from all of the others in its interest to historians and particularly to historians who are Christians. For it is the official log kept by an unknown scribe who accompanied these wise men on their journey. His record provides fresh insight into the identity and the travels of these ancient men. He refers to the size of the entourage that accompanied them, a body that numbered nearly 150. In that band, he says, were personal servants and scribes like himself. There were men who cared for the animals and others who prepared meals. There were traders and translators, medical personnel, and a large contingent of armed soldiers to provide security along the way. He describes the towering pillar of dust that followed them as they made their way across the desert and speaks of the stir they created in every village through which they passed and in each city that they approached. And nowhere, he says, was his stir greater than in the capital of the nationalistic Jewish people. He writes of shivering in the cold of the dark nights and sweltering in the heat of the long days. Now, all of this we might have assumed from what little Matthew tells us and our knowledge of the region and the time. But this unidentified scribe goes on to add other details that we could not otherwise know, details that add personal color to the narrative, for he tells us that these men we call wise didn't like one another very much. They were scholars, diplomats, and scientists, and subject to the vanities of their various professions. Each of them regarded himself as superior to normal people in general and to his fellow travelers in particular. Each of them thought that he alone should have been entrusted with the honor of leading this mission and resented the presence of the others. The rivalry among them was so intense along the way, the entire body became divided, each faction conspiring against the others for the best rations, the most comfortable sleeping accommodations, and leadership of the group. According to our anonymous scribe, the Magi argued loudly among themselves about which of the gifts they were bringing was the most fitting and would be the most appreciated, the gold people the frankincense people, the myrrh people, all insisting that theirs was the only gift appropriate to the occasion and that the others were paltry and irrelevant by comparison. And as they made their way through the desert, these important men rehearsed the long and eloquent speeches they planned to deliver when they found the king. 
each expecting not only to impress the court they were about to visit, but to outdo his rivals as well. They were still arguing and jostling for position when they arrived at the house, where the name-born king was thought to be found. As their translator knocked on the door, these men we call wise continued their pushing and their elbowing one another. Then the door was opened. The translator explained the purpose for their visit. The host stood aside, motioning with his hand for these strangers to enter his home. And even as they passed through the door, these men carrying their gifts, each regarded as more precious than the others, were pushing one another in order to be the first into the presence of the king. And then they saw Jesus. For the rest of his life, not one of these men could give a reason. But seeing this particular king caused him to be instantly and deeply ashamed for his attitudes and his behavior. No longer caring about who went first, they knelt in his presence as one man. Suddenly aware that no gift, however prized and extravagant in the estate of men, was adequate in his sight. They laid their gifts at his feet as if they were nothing but filthy rags and dusty relics. Their long, grandiose speech is now forgotten. They uttered words they knew to be little more than the prating of fools, wished the new king and his family well, and made their way to the door. It's humorous and insightful to read that their leaving was delayed by the fact that now each one of them stood aside asking his friends to go first. The men who made their way home were not the same as the men who came, for they had seen Jesus and were transformed by the experience. I made all of this up. There isn't a shred of known truth in this whole story, but I made it up to make a point. This story about the wise men is something like the parables that Jesus used to illustrate various truths and principles of the kingdom of heaven. And in the Gospels, we read that those who most needed to hear their message found them to be little more than amusing stories. But to those the Lord described as having eyes to see and ears to hear, they were the word of God that enlightened their eyes and quickened their consciences. The point of my story is that when people look upon Jesus, when they fix their gaze upon him, the petty rivalries of life are absorbed and forgotten in a common vision of the glory of God and by the humility that such a vision necessarily prompts. When we're young Christians, just beginning to study the Bible, we focus our attention on the words or on the lines of the words spread across its pages. But as we grow in Christ, we begin to sense the presence of truths that transcend those words and are found between those lines. And one of those truths has to do with the sin that remains in us, even as the redeemed children of God and its poisonous effects on our relationships and our behavior. In the New Testament, we are made, made aware that the blood was scarcely dry on the cross on which Jesus died when those who claimed to be his followers were starting to squabble among themselves. 
Paul and Barnabas, the finest man and the sweetest spirit in the early church, quarreled to such an extent about the usefulness of John Mark that they went their separate ways. James found it necessary to address the favoritism some awarded to the rich at the expense of the poor in the church and spoke not of the possibility but of the reality of believers actually fighting with one another. In Paul's happiest letter, the epistle to the Philippians, he found it necessary to deal with two women who were engaged in an unidentified turf war. And the problems in Corinth were so many and so great that it required not one but two letters to address them. It was Christians living in the very shadow of the cross who were urged to be found looking unto Jesus. If Paul and Barnabas were both looking unto Jesus, their differences of opinion might have had less severe consequences. If those two women in Philippi were looking unto Jesus, the letter written to their church would have been shorter. If believers in Corinth were looking not unto Paul or Cephas or Apollos, and not unto themselves but unto Jesus, the church they divided with their pettiness would have been much brighter light in their community. And so it is today. When Christian husbands and wives are both looking unto Jesus... Their relationships are sweetened and enriched. When each member of a Christian family is looking unto Jesus, that order that reflects the order in the creation of God and that peace that passes understanding will mark their home. And when the leaders and members of a church are found looking unto Jesus, the result will be a unity that glorifies God and transcends the petty differences and jealousy that have the potential of division. No one will hoard complaints, using them like a pile of chips brought to the table in the hope of winning the pot at its center. No one will ride roughshod over the structures of the church seeking to advance his own agenda at any cost. Gone will be the suspicions and criticisms so common to others, and differences will be dealt with openly, humbly, and for the sake of that sweet oneness that Christ intends for his church that transcends almost anything that we can find to argue about in his church. Like the wise men in my story, we come to the church out of the darkness of the world, where we're accustomed to argument, to deceit, to having to struggle to gain advantage, suspicious of all, hostile to those we think might be enemies. We come through the doors, still jostling for position, bringing gifts we regard as precious to Christ and essential to the work of his kingdom. But then, if our hearts and minds are rightly aligned, like the wise men in our story, we see Jesus. And our marriages and our families and our church are transformed by the vision. In the worship that we offer in this hour, in the business that we will transact in the next, and in our lives tomorrow. May every one of us be known as one who is looking unto Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father, we understand that you have called us to be a part of something that is far greater than ourselves. On the pages of your word, you call it your kingdom, 
Jesus calls it his church. We pray, our Father, that we might be like these men that with good reason we call wise. We pray that today and tomorrow and always we might be found not just looking for Jesus, but looking upon Jesus. And may that vision fill us. May it stand before us. May it give us the wisdom and the peace to be all that we're called to be in our marriages, in our homes, and in this place. We ask this in Jesus' name. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.